As you see here, we are starting this series today that's called Not Alone. This series really is talking about the topic of friendship and the importance of friendship. And one thing I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed this too, but uh, the younger you are, generally the, the easier it is to deal with friendship, right? I mean, have you ever been to a playground and you see a, a five-year-old walk up to another five-year-old? How do they start it? They say, hey, you want to be friends? Yeah? Okay, slide, let's go, right? You throw a couple five-year-olds in a playground with some swings and some slides and some other things they could jump off of, and you have a friendship. They're instant BFFs. They're sharing snacks. They're doing adventures together. And you see these young kids, young babies, really, right, deal easier with friendships. As we grow older, you get into that kind of weird high school, junior high experience, and that's where you really begin to see some tight bonds, right? And it's usually friends that gather around common interests, uh, but it's also in this stage of life where we begin to experience perhaps rejection, bullying, right? We know bullying is, uh, is an issue in junior high and high school. And it's usually at this age where we begin to wonder, where do I fit in? Where is my role? Where is my place? And that honestly continues into college and even after college and into adulthood. And it seems like the older that we are, uh, the harder that we find it to connect with people. There's been a ton of research that's been done on friendships. Leading uh, scientists believe that babies as young as nine months old, I want you to think about that, that babies as young as nine months old are already uh, able to to pick up on the cues of relationship, that they're observing how mothers and fathers get along, how brothers and sisters speak to one another, and before they could even talk, before they could even walk, before they could even communicate, uh, babies are able to, to infer and to distinguish the positive aspects of relationship. These influences of friendship continue throughout our whole life, and studies that have been done in, in societies and demographics that look at people who live long lives, what they found, what they determined was, yes, healthy diet matters. Yes, levels of exercise matter. Yes, levels of stress matter. Those are all important things to living a long, healthy life. But the common denominator in societies and in populations that have the longest longevity of life, what they found, what researchers found, was it was the quality and the length of their relationships that mattered. It was those who were more connected to one another, who experienced a greatest opportunity to have a long, healthy life. That's interesting, isn't it? Because when you think about 2020 and what 2020 did to friendships, did to being together, did to being connected, what 2020 did was really expose and really bring a magnifying glass to another epidemic. This is what some people are calling the epidemic of loneliness. I have some pictures here of some articles. You'll see them up top as well. Um, Harvard University recently did a study, and they showed that people between 18 and 25 years old, the young adults, are experiencing just uh, crazy amounts of isolation and loneliness. Young people, young adults, those that you think were the most carefree, the most 
able to connect during this last year are reporting the highest levels of isolation. But it doesn't stop there because interestingly other organizations like the HSRA was reporting in this article that just recently came out that it's those over 65 who are experiencing the greatest levels of loneliness. The loneliness epidemic, especially amongst our older citizens. But you could just continue doing research and you'll see that loneliness and the loneliness epidemic is not only affecting young adults, not only affecting our seniors, but also affecting millennials. Those in the middle portion of life. And millennials are experiencing the loneliness epidemic. This is from Forbes. There's been research that says even the youngest children, what we would call Generation Z, are also experiencing moments of, of, of loneliness. And it's having long-term mental health impacts on them. As a matter of fact, interesting that all this research, no matter what age you are in, no matter what group you are a part of, the epidemic of loneliness is reaching your group. One shocking research piece revealed that the average person, the average person, only has one close friend. One close friend. In this other headline here. And that is considered a person that you could talk honestly with, that you could be vulnerable with, that you could share your life with. The average American only has one close friend. And um, this is from In Business Insider magazine. And you'll see that it's, it's mentioning that those are having real consequences. And even general uh, medical journals and general medical societies are grabbing wind of this, right? I mean, everyone's favorite website, WebMD, when you think you're dying, I know that's where everyone goes, and you have an itch in your throat, and it tells you that it's some rare disease from Africa that hasn't been seen in 100 years, and you all panic, right? WebMD is even picking up on this as well and telling us that, that these, uh, loneliness is having real, real consequences. One very interesting chart that I saw was this one here, and there was... Out of all these statistics here, there's a lot that you could kind of wrap your mind around, but the two that I've circled here were, were kind of stand out to me. One, researchers found that loneliness, uh, those feelings of being disconnected, of being isolated, of being on your own, is just as damaging to your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Think about that. 15 cigarettes a day. Every day. Another lonely day passes by, 15 cigarettes. The compounding damage that that does to you. This other statistic here that social isolation increases the risk of mortality by 30%. The question that I have is how? How can this be happening in a world that's so connected in a world that seems so close by where people are literally a couple clicks of your phone away, you now have the ability to... When I was a kid, I used to watch the Jetsons and I used to watch cartoons where the thought of talking to someone while seeing them was like the coolest thing ever. Now we have that at our fingertips. We have Skype, we have FaceTime, we have Google Meet, we have Zoom. We have all these capabilities in our society where we think we should be the most connected why is it that 
by and large, as a people, we feel so isolated, we feel so lonely. It's easy to kind of blame social media, right? And most people, they're quick, well, it's all this technology. That, you know, what should have been connecting us is really just pulling us away. Uh, not so fast. Actually, some of those researchers say that social media makes people feel more connected than disconnected. So it's not totally social media. Yeah, there's some truth that, that technology, right, and the availability of technology does pull some people away. But what people uh, that study this, sociologists and psychologists and people who study anthropology and, and, and society and how people relate, what people are understanding that it's not technology that's isolating people, that's causing loneliness. It's not technology. It's an ideology. It's a thought. And the thought is that in our hyper-westernized thinking, we value individualism in this country. Hard work. Establishing yourself. Being independent. Hey, I don't need to rely on anyone. I don't need anybody's help. I could do things on my own. I'm okay to do it by myself. And in a culture where we value independence and individuality, which are not all horrible things, we, we, we become a fractured nation. I love this picture here that shows the flag of people in a hyper-independent society, how we all kind of become our own little piece. Yeah, we understand we're part of a bigger society, but, but I want to do me. And just think about how we handle company. 30, 40 years ago when someone knocked on your door, you were excited that you had company, that you had visitors, that somebody was here, that people were going to come see you. You would sit down, you would talk, you would discuss, you would share life. Hey, how's the kids? How's work? How's family doing? Everything was good, right? Now, when people knock on your door, we run and we hide. Who is it? Why are you here? What do you want? Don't come in. We've become so fractured, and I love this picture, and, and, and psychologists are, and sociologists are using this term, is that we've become silos. If you've ever driven through the country, you've seen pictures of silos. And this is who we are. We are we're our own little space. Kind of together, but not really. There's space in between us all. We become a siloed people. And at last year, the healthy practices that we had of gathering together, of visiting together, of togetherness, were stopped as isolation increased. And what we're seeing is that it's morphed from something healthy, which we called socially distancing from each other, has morphed from something healthy into something unhealthy, which we call isolation and loneliness. And the whole goal of this series is how do we fight this loneliness? How do we rediscover the call for community? Because this is not how God designed us to live. For us to be our own space and apart from one another, this is not part of God's design. In the Word of God, we see a theology of relationships from the book of Genesis, where God creates everything, to the book of Revelation, where God regathers everything. And in this series, we're going through the spiritual practice. I call it a spiritual practice of friendship, because just like praying, just like fasting, just like studying the Word, are spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, so is friendship. 
so is community. And here's really the big idea of this whole series. We were created in the image of God. And since God is a relational being, we are built with a deep need, God-given need for community and belonging. God has placed within you, by His design, a desire to be part of community. The desire to be part of a place where you belong. It's by design, it's by His good grace that God is giving you that need. I've titled this message today, Made to be Together. Made to be Together. And we're going to be going through uh, some scriptures. And what I want to share with you today is the foundation of friendship. Where is the foundation laid for the importance, the value, the meaning of friendship? What is the formula for friendship? What is a biblical example of what friendship could be? And then a fellowship of friendship. The practical doing of friendship. What does it look like? So let's start way at the beginning. With your Bibles, go with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. I want to start by talking about the foundation of friendship. Where does this God-given design and purpose that we all have to be connected with others, to to find a place where we belong, where is it found? It's found in Genesis chapter 2. And the foundation for friendship is simply this, that it is not good for us to be alone. It's not good for us to be alone. I know when I start talking about friendship, some of you are instantly drawn back to those awkward moments where maybe you went into a new school, right, and you looked around and you were sweating and you were hyperventilating. Who am I going to talk to? Who am I going to know? Am I going to be here by myself? Maybe you've walked into a new workplace, you've experienced the same thing. Hey, maybe some of you walked into this building this morning and right now you're experiencing that. Let me tell you something, that, that awkwardness, that feeling that you feel when you go into a new place and you don't know someone, that feeling is that design that God has placed within you. It's a longing for wanting to be in community. You're built with it. It's not strange to feel that way. You're built with that feeling. And in Genesis here, we see the creation narrative, right? God creates the planets. God creates the stars, the mountains. God creates everything. He creates living kind. He creates mankind. And we see God speaking purpose and mission into all things. And God forms from the dust of the earth this man. And his name is Adam. And he places him there in a garden. And he gives Adam a purpose. He gives Adam a function. He gives Adam a mission. He gives Adam work. And all throughout the narrative of creation, all throughout creation, everything that God does, God stands back from Himself and says, wow, this is good. The heavens and the earth are created. God stands back and He says, this is good. The sea and the land, God stands back. This is good. The night and the day, God stands back and says, this is good. 
All the living creatures, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the things that crawl on the land, God says, this is good. God creates man and He says, this is good. As a matter of fact, there in Genesis 1.31, it says, then God looked over everything that He had made, everything, the totality of His creation, everything put together with purpose, with mission, by design, by God. God looks at it all and it says that it is not only good, but He says it is what? Very good. God says, wow, this is very good. My creation. Created for my purposes. Seven times in Genesis 1 we see God declaring His creation as being good. But there's one instance where God looks at something and He says, no, 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 no. This this is not good. This is not good. And that's found in Genesis 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, where God looks at this man that he had created. He's alone in the garden. And God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now I know a lot of church services and groups, we've used this scripture to talk about marriage and we know that God's going to create Eve and bring Eve and I'll make a helper suitable for him. That's, that's all true. God creates and institutes the, 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 the idea of marriage and, and being together, man and woman, and that's God's design. But before any of that, God sees loneliness and says, this is not good. This is not my design. Before marriage, before male and female, loneliness. The clarity of God saying this is not good. Now why isn't it good? Because we are created in the image of God. In Genesis we see that God says, let us create man in our image. We call it the Imago Dei, the image of God. Mankind made in the image of God. And we, not, we don't reflect God's physical likeliness but we reflect His attributes in who He is. And God is a relational being. We know this in theology as what we call the Trinity. The God three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one all together. And by nature, because God is three in one, He's a relational being. And because we are made in that image of the Trinity in God's likeness, we are also relational beings. Created, designed, given a deep need for community to not be alone. God said it is not good for man to be alone. Pastor and author Chad Bird, he he has this quote. I love what he says here, especially the ending of it. He says, despite God's perfect formation of man, aloneness is ungood for man. Aloneness is ungood. In a narrative full of goods and very goods, this is the first not good that we encounter, Genesis 2.18. It is not good for the man to be alone precisely because he is not created to live as an isolated, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-actuating, self-identifying individual. Chad Bird saying, God did not make you to be a silo. And I love this part here. There are no islands in the stream of humanity. There's no islands. 
Now listen, don't confuse what I'm saying here. Aloneness, moments of being alone are good. Those are healthy. You need those. There are moments where you need to come apart, be by yourself, regather, recenter, focus, breathe, decompress, whatever you want to call it. Moments of aloneness are okay. But long stretches of isolation where you intentionally pull away from people is not God's design for you. That's not the way we were created to be. We understand that this isolation, it, it, it's combative to our souls. When we're isolated, we move away from God. The weight of our issues weigh on us even deeper when we're alone. And often these moments of isolation and loneliness lead to depression. A few years ago, I was able to go to Alcatraz Prison, famous prison uh, off the coast of San Francisco, these are the um, solitary confinement cells in Alcatraz. The, the harshest of harshest prisons. And this is like the worst of the worst place in the whole prison. The worst of the prisoners would spend time here. Uh, these cells are not very big. Okay, just barely enough room for a person to lay down flat. And probably stretching out your arms, you could touch one wall to the other. And these windows, you could see the door frame there. I, w- I was... I'll say I was much more healthy back then. Um, but you can see my, my frame uh, almost fills the whole doorway. These windows that you see here on the door had a screen that would black out the light. And this is the most severe of punishments that they would put to prisoners who, who would act out and who wouldn't behave in general population. They would spend time in solitary confinement, in loneliness. And, and now more prisons are learning that this is a very destructive punishment. This is not helping the situation. And more states have banned solitary confinement. There's a human rights activist, Victor Pate, who was once a prisoner, now a free man, helping other people who have changed their life around. And look what he has to say about this practice of solitary confinement. He said, it didn't take me long to start seeing things that weren't in my cell, to start having conversations with nobody there, you can never get over that. Isolation, loneliness, combative to our souls. The consequences of this loneliness, of this isolation, we know it heightens and increases suicidal ideation. We know that it increases self-harm and we know that it makes mental illness even worse. Listen, God didn't create us to be alone. God didn't create us for solitary confinement. And what 2020 has done is it's wrecked our sense of community. It's done a number on our belonging, on our friendships, and it's easy to minimize this as saying, well, this, this is the new normal. No, this is not normal. We cannot be a church whoever accepts this as normal. Because it's not part of God's design. When God looked at Adam, He said, it's not good. 
Man alone, apart from no one, is not good. And may I remind you, because some people will over-spiritualize it and say, well, as long as I got God, I'm good. Hey, Adam walked with God in the garden. He had God. They talked. They communicated. God and Adam had a relationship that was deep, that was bonded, that was close. And still on top of that, God said, it's not good for him to be alone. So don't hyper-spiritualize it and say, well, as long as I got God and I got Jesus, I'm good. No, you're not. This is not God's design. This is not God's normal. And what we must do as a church is we must reassure one another and we must be present with one another and remind one another that you are not alone. That we need one another. We combat isolation by living in community, by having friendship, by realizing that we are not alone. C.S. Lewis says this, the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like this. What? You too? I thought I was the only one. How many people are realizing, man, last year was a lonely year. Last year was rough for me. I'm sure it was rough for you. That's the beginnings of friendship. When you look at someone and you say, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Hey, there's commonality here. Let's walk together. And what biblical friendship does is it's two people side by side staring at God and saying, wow, look at what God is doing. Isn't it beautiful? What? You too? I thought it was the only one that's seeing what God is doing. That's the beginning of the expression of friendship. When you have two minds who come together and say, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. The vitality of friendship when you realize that you're not alone. I want you to think about right now and to consider what are some friendships that you know that have gone stale this last year, that feel distant. And I want to challenge you today. Don't walk away from those friendships. Press into them. Reach out to that person and say, hey, how you doing? And if they say, man, I'm struggling, you tell them, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. And rediscover the call of community. This is the foundation of friendship. It's God-given. It's His design that we not live as silos, but that we be together. We're made to be together. Let's look at the formula of friendship. Throughout Scripture, there's many, many examples of what biblical friendship looks like. Um, and, and, and I'm calling the, the, the formula of friendship is to be knitted together. I like that idea of being knitted together. We find this in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18 between these two friends named David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan, I think, are, are a good biblical, there's many others, but they are a good biblical example of what true friendship is. We know that David, who was just a shepherd boy, was called by God, goes and slays Goliath, kills Goliath with some sling and some stones. He finds fame. Everyone starts talking about David. And David not only finds fame, but he finds a true friend. He finds Jonathan. We see here in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1, it says, After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan. 
Jonathan was King Saul's son. It says there that there was an immediate bond between them. Other translation says they, they were immediately knit together. I like that better. That because they were talking and because they were together and they, they shared life, that instantly there was this bond between them. There was this connection, this knitting together. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you just instantly bonded with them? Is there any human emotion that, that, that is as fulfilling as that feeling, right? When you say, wow, I really connected with that person. That person understood me. That person got me. There is a bond here. We're knitted together. That's what David and Jonathan are experiencing here. It says they were uh, immediately bonded between them, and Jonathan loved David. This is an example of a relationship that's deep, that's profound, that's just not an acquaintance. Not only, hey, I know your kids, or, and I know your spouse, and I know where you work, and I know your address, and I got your, you got your phone number, and you're my friend on social media. That's surface-level friendship. This friendship here was something that was deep. It was reciprocal. There was a give and take. It was transactional. Hey, I pour into you. You pour into me. I pray for you. You pray for me. I care for you. You care for me. It was transactional. It was reciprocal, and it was bonded. They were knitted together. I love that image of biblical friendship. Samuel goes on to describe it, and he says, From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David. He made a covenant. Because he loved them as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, his bow, his sword, and his belt. Here you see three characteristics of true biblical friendship. First, you see love. Scripture says there that Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. This is a, a, a friendship kind of love, right? And this is a love that C.S. Lewis says is different because he says friendship is in a sense the least natural of loves. It has the least commerce with our reserves. There is nothing throaty about it, right? Nothing makes your heart flutter about this friendship kind of love. You don't get red in the face like you do about romantic love, right? It doesn't make you all tingly inside. It's strange. It says it's essentially between individuals. The moment two people are friends, they have in some degree drawn apart together from the herd. It's this love that Jonathan has for David that he demonstrates in the way that he cares for him. Caring for one another is an attribute of biblical friendship. That sensitivity that says, hey, if I could be happy when you're sad, I'm not really your friend. But if I care for you, when you're sad, I should feel sad. When you're happy, I should feel happy. When you win, we win together. That's the care, that's the concern that David is felt and given here by Jonathan who loves him as he loves himself. The second thing you see here is commitment. It says that Jonathan sealed a pact with David. He committed to their friendship. 
He made a covenant with Him. There was an agreement between them. You see that, that there was this moment here where, where Jonathan and David understood that, that, that there is a, 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 a devotion between us, a commitment, a constancy that says, hey, in good times and in bad times, we're going to be friends. We're going to stick this out together, right? Let's shake on it. Let's agree with it. It's this constancy in friendship that really makes vulnerability and transparency possible. Listen, if, if you're saying, you know what, I've never had a friend like this that I could open up and truly tell everything to, that I could confide in, a confidant, I'd have never had a confidant. My question to you is, have you been consistent in your friendship? Or is it just in seasons where, hey, when things are good, we're good, and when things are bad, we don't talk for a while until you need me to help you move a couch or something and you call me back? It's constancy. It's commitment in relationships that give them depth, that allow you to say, this is a person that I could go there with this person. Do you have someone in your life that you could go there with them? And you know what I mean when I say you could go there. I mean whatever it is that you're going through, good or bad, constancy. Do you have that friend? You see that in the commitment that David and Jonathan made here. They had a pact together. And the last thing you see is this sacrifice. Scripture says that Jonathan took off his robe, gave it to David. Didn't stop there. His sword, his bow. This is more than just saying, hey bro, yeah, here's my starter jacket. You can have it. I'll go get another one. Or, hey, sis, here's my, uh, you know, Louis Vuitton purse. I could go get another one. Some of you are saying, wow, that's a good friend. I've had friends give me the Amazon $3.99 purse, but not the Louis Vuitton. This is more than just material being exchanged here. You need to understand that Jonathan was a prince. He was the son of a king. His dad's name was Saul. A man who ruled the nation of Israel. And by Jonathan removing his robe, what he was doing is he was saying, David, I'm going to share my space with you. I'm going to share my position, my benefits, my privilege. I'm going to share everything that I have because I'm a prince. I'm sharing it with you, David. I'm sacrificing some of my liberty, some of my comfort, some of my relational equity with my own father to make you my son. Because this relationship with David was going to cost cost Jonathan something. You know what it cost Jonathan? It cost him his life. Because shortly after this, Jonathan would become the middleman between this fight between David and his father. Don't you hate being in the middle? If you've ever been in the middle of the argument, it is a terrible place to be. You feel torn. You don't know what's right. Everything's a dilemma. Everything is drama. And this relationship was sacrificing to Jonathan because Jonathan got a friend, but it cost him. And listen, the most meaningful of relationships that you could engage with, with your friends, are relationships that, you know what, they're going to cost you something. It might cost you your comfort. Yeah, you might get a call at 3 in the morning because them and their spouse are at it again. 
yeah, you might have to dish out and borrow them some money because, you know, all the talks you told them about handling their finances, not getting in. Relationships come with a cost. This relationship complicated Jonathan's relationship with Saul. But yet, Jonathan says, here, David, I'm going to share what I have in my life with you. Even those things which were much more precious than material. Here's my time. Here's my heart. Here's my vulnerability. Here's my openness, David. It's a sacrifice. Biblical friendships are marked by sacrifice. Jesus, who's our friend, did what? Sacrificed himself for us. This formula of godly relationship communicates the sense of, I'm here with you. David and Jonathan live this out. Many times Jonathan helps David escape his own father. And once Jonathan is dead, David lives up to his pact and he takes Jonathan's remaining family to live with him in the palace. It's David saying, Jonathan, you're no longer here with me, but yet I will honor you. Because what we had was love. What we had was commitment. And what we had was sacrifice. It's the formula of friendship, to be knitted together. Eugene Peterson, who put together the Message Bible, says, Friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. It's every bit as significant as prayer and fasting. Like the sacramental use of water and bread of wine, friendship takes what's common in human experience and turns it into something holy. Just as significant as prayer and fasting, spiritual friendship takes something that's regular in the world and makes it something holy. We have the foundation of fellowship. We have the formula of fellowship. And then there's the of friendship, sorry. Then there's the fellowship of friendship, which means being devoted to community. Devotion. We find this in Acts chapter 2. For us to thrive, for us to be people who thrive in our friendships, we must be devoted to community. There must be a devotion, an intentionality to say, this is my community. I'm devoted to it. I'm in it. The church serves as the cultivator of these relationships. It's a hub. It's the soil from last week, right? that makes relationships thrive and grow. In the book of Acts, we see that all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper, which is communion, and to prayer. We see there that this is the design of God being lived out in practice by the early church. That there was a bond between the believers. That there was a devotion to one another, a commitment to gather, to be together. In verse 44, we see that the writer of Acts tells us that all the believers were together. I love that. They were selling what they had to give to the poor. They were gathering in the temple courts to talk. They were gathering in each other's house to break bread and to share meals. They were gathering together. And the Bible says that the Lord increased their numbers daily. 
the image of what the true church should be. Now let me be very honest. Because I want to take a moment to acknowledge that the church has not always lived up to this. That church sometimes have become a place where there's cliques, there's favoritisms, there's politics involved, and church often fails to be a church that's devoted themselves to one another, to the community. And as a result, there are people who experience hurt from the church. And just let me be the first to say that if that's you, if, if, if this church has hurt you in that way, I want to tell you I'm sorry. If this church has ever made you feel like, man, I don't really belong there, I'm not part of this circle, I'm not part of this clique, I'm not part of the inside, I don't have it in with that person, or I don't go to this group. If this church has ever made you feel like an outsider, or made you feel like, man, I don't belong there, I apologize for us failing to being devoted to one another. Because what we should aspire to be and what we should all aim to be is like this church. Who devotes themselves to one another. I'm not saying that we're in each other's business 24-7. Again, that's not what I'm saying. But there is a sense of belonging where we say, this is my community, this is my church family, and I devote myself to it. So that means I come to church. That means I pray with my brothers and sisters. That means when they're struggling, I'm struggling. When they're rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. Why? Because we're one church body. Hey, when my back's hurting, guess what? In a few hours, in a couple days, my knee's going to feel it. And it's just not because I'm in my 40s. You see... Social distance has quickly turned into social isolation. And I just want to say, if we didn't reach out to you last year, if we never called you, if I never texted you, if I didn't myself personally communicate to you, hey, how are you doing? How's life? How are you doing through this pandemic? If I didn't do that for you, I want to say I'm sorry. Because I want to be a person who's devoted to community. The practicality of friendship comes through the means of devotion. And when you're devoted to somebody, you care. There's love, there's commitment, there's sacrifice. This is the desperate need to be in fellowship, to be connected, to find a way to not be lonely, to not be isolated. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Catholic priest in World War II, who was murdered by the Nazis. If you ever want to read a great biography, read his biography. This German priest who harbored and protected Jews, spoke out against Nazism, was led to his death thanking God that in minutes he would be in his presence, was sustained and was encouraged 
to withstand everything he did in that time. Why? Because there was believers around him. Because there was others like him who were arrested, who were being persecuted. And he says the physical presence, this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to a believer. You see, it's when you're in the most heartbreaking of circumstances. It's when you're in your darkest seasons. It's when death seems like it's at your doorstep. Is when you need people the most. It's when you need people the most. And the church is a place where we create an atmosphere where people could come, show up, and see God move in their life. It's a place where you come and you find encouragement, you find prayers, you find people who care, and where you discover the love of God. Man, that's what the church needs to devote itself to. Let me finish with this. The night before he died, the night before he died, Jesus was desperately trying to convey to his disciples what he was about. Jesus, I could picture him searching for the words, what could I say? How could I communicate what's about to happen to them so that they get it? Because many of them were just not getting it, right? No, Jesus, you'll never, we'll never let anyone kill you. No, Jesus, you cannot die. You came here to set up this kingdom. You came here to rule. No, Jesus, I won't desert you. I won't give up on you. No, Jesus, wash me all. I want all. The, the disciples were not getting it. And Jesus, searching for words, saying, What could I say to them that will let them get what I'm about? And these are the words that Jesus chooses. Look at John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. He teaches them and he says, Look, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. And look at verse 13. He says, There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's what? Friends. There's no greater love than to lay one's life down for one's friends. Suddenly, they got it. Not only they got it, but the whole world got it. And through Jesus, we see true friendship. In the beginning, God walked with Adam. And now we have the ability to walk with Jesus. Walking is a Jewish metaphor for friendship. The image of two people on their way together. Sojourning through life together. Walking through the valleys together. Walking through the mountaintops together. Walking through the pain together. Walking through the joy together. Walking through the darkness of night together. Walking through the sun rising in the morning. Walking when there's uh, clouds in the sky. Walking through storms. Walking through challenges. Walking through fire. It's the image of friendship. And we have the ability to walk with Jesus. Spiritual friendship directs our feet to live in the love of the one who laid down his life for us. So my question to you is, are you opening up yourself to community? Or do you find yourself in the corner, lonely, 
alone. It's not good for you to be alone. God did not design you to be alone. Don't let distance turn into isolation, but enter into again into a space where you discover community. Can we stand together?